Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I had the pleasure to talk with Arlene Tuckman about her award-winning book, Diabetes, A History of Race and Disease, out from Yale University Press in 2020. As you'll hear, our interview is a collaborative effort with students my course, American Medicine in the World. The book tells the American history of a disease that continues to defy categorization. Researchers for more than a century have worked to create distinctions between types of diabetes to parse people who all share the trait of high levels of sugar in their blood. Tuckman shows how efforts to divide diabetes into types tracked efforts to divide people into different types, specifically by race. For Tuckman, this move reflects an American obsession with race that too often overlooks racism as a fundamental cause of disease. The book won the 2022 Rosen Prize from the American Association for the History of Medicine and will be of immediate interest for folks who are also interested in science and technology studies, American history, and social justice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. So this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University with students in the course American Medicine in the World, and we're very happy to be talking today with Arlene Tuckman, who is the author of the award-winning book, Diabetes, A History of Race and Disease, which won the Rose Medal from the American Association um, uh, for the History of Medicine in 2022. And so the book um, is about diabetes. And diabetes, uh, as many people know, is typically in the present day divided into two forms known as type 1 and type 2, or uh, juvenile diabetes um, and other types of diabetes. But what you point out early on in the book is that actually there's a lot of ambiguity about these categorizations in the first place, all to just mark um, instances in which there's a high level of sugar in people's blood. But the categories themselves have changed substantially over the past hundred years. And so you start readers off with this question of just why bother trying to categorize if the categories keep shifting around? Like what is driving this impetus to categorize? So to start us off, could you just say a word about how you go about answering this question? If you had to kind of boil it down, why are people insisting on creating categories? Well, I think that um, we're all always creating categories. It's one of the ways in which we create meaning. Um, Otherwise, everything is just all blurry. Um, So really what I'm doing in the book is asking why these categories and why not other categories? Um, so um, you know, I've basically written a cultural history of diabetes. Um, I've looked at the question of um, who has been considered most at risk of developing diabetes and why. And I trace um, how that answer has changed over roughly 120 years. Um, and the categories that I found, or the, the main category that I found that has most often been employed to make sense of um, this question um, is categories of race. So um, what the book does is to trace how the answer to this question of who gets diabetes and why, who is most susceptible, that 
there has always been a one population, one racial population that has been labeled most susceptible, but that has changed radically over the last 120 years. So the book starts by looking at when diabetes was considered to be a Jewish disease, and it traces it through uh, a significant number of um, different changing populations. So from a Jewish disease to largely any white middle-class disease to um, the disease of Native Americans, and then by the 1980s, the categories really are the ones that um, still surface today. So if you look at any of the major websites um, to see which populations are considered most likely to develop diabetes, then you'll read Native Americans, African Americans, um, and um, Latinx populations. Yeah, it seems as if the categories for diabetes shifted as the as ways of categorizing human beings shifted as well, and thinking about the racial classification. So efforts to categorize people were sort of tacking on to these, um, the transitions in categorizing forms of diabetes as well. So, I mean, I, we found the um, reasoning for, for taking diabetes in particular. So answering the question of why this disease, I found it really compelling um, in that there wasn't just one important shift that we can see historically, but the categories kept changing. There was a number of times in which the categories changed. Um, but but in, in addition to that, the, there's a really personal connection for you as well to the story of diabetes. And here I'm going to hand it over to Chase. Yeah, so uh, the book starts with your connection to diabetes um, and your dad. Uh, so how would you say that your connection to the disease affected how you approached writing the book? Yeah, you know, um, so of course I, I, I looked at a number of the questions that you had posed ahead of time, and I have to say that this question stumped me. Um, a little bit more than the other questions, which I have to say is a little embarrassing because you'd think that I would have down pat the um, answer to this uh, question or that I would have spent a lot of time thinking about exactly how my close relationship to um, a family member who had the disease would have shaped the writing. Um, but in thinking about your question, it made me realize that... Um, the negative stereotypes that we all have come to associate with diabetes, and um, and there were negative negative stereotypes through time, that they didn't they had very little impact on my dad, and um, and I so you know I thought more about this, and well, part of it was just his personality because he just did not care what other people thought about him. So um, even had I witnessed him being um, confronted by negative stereotypes, it, it wouldn't have mattered to him, but I didn't. Um, so I, I think it's also because my dad had what I call in the book, you know, the good diabetes. Um, although he didn't start out that way. So when he was diagnosed with diabetes in his mid-60s, um, Doctors believed that he had type 2 diabetes, which is um, what I grew up calling adult onset. And he was a little plump at the time. Um, so when he was in his mid-60s, 
So it actually made sense. It fit the, um, the kind of signs and symptoms that doctors associate with that form of the disease. Um, but it turned out that he had an unusual form of diabetes, late um, onset autoimmune diabetes. And he lost a huge amount of his body weight within about a year and a half. Um, and so it turned out that his body really wasn't producing any um, diabetes. Um, I'm sorry, any insulin. But when my dad had trouble controlling his diabetes, and, and he did, um, he had what was also known as brittle diabetes, um, although there are members of the medical community who claim that that category does not exist. Um, but when he had trouble controlling his diabetes, nobody blamed him. Like I never saw anyone take him to task. Um, and I think it was because well, he was very elderly. Um, well, not when he was in his mid-60s, but he lived until his early 90s because he was elderly, um, because he was white, and because he was thin, he was tiny. So I, I, the best I can say is that, um, you know, in thinking about your question, that um, it probably sensitized me to the unfairness of blaming others who... Um, who also had trouble controlling um, diabetes, but through no fault of their own. So I think that's the best I can do, but I'm happy with the follow-up question if, if that doesn't satisfy. Yeah, one of the most, um, I think, uh, moving or surprising sentences in the book um, for many of us was the last sentence of the introduction when you write, my father had his faults, but no one blamed him for his diabetes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it was such a, a perfect like daughter's commentary on on a parent. <laughs> yeah, he was not an easy man. <laughs> but but it was also sort of pointing the way towards um what you're showing us is one of the big impacts of the ways in which diabetes has been categorized. Um and you you've uh referred to it a little bit already of thinking about the good diabetes and the bad diabetes. And the idea of your dad being blamed and people being blamed for their illnesses or not being being blamed. Uh, and to the extent that he was um, coded as a lean white man really factored in, uh, in whether he was considered blameworthy. And therefore, it was an issue of lifestyle choices that he was responsibilized for changing. Um, and I feel like it's, it's all the more... Um, um, interesting to observe because with the in the first chapter you you tell readers about the history of understandings of diabetes as a Jewish disease right you also write about your own you know your father coming to town for your own son's bar mitzvah and these sorts of things so there's this remarkable story of um your dad as a Jewish man and the Jewish understand the, the understanding that diabetes was associated um, with negative attributes of um, people who were Jewish. Negative, negative and positive. So say more. So, so one of the startling discoveries that I made in the course of writing this book was that it wasn't simply that the racial categories changed, 
but that in the first half of the 20th century, diabetes was also considered to be a disease of civilization. So, um, so yeah, I mean, no one wanted diabetes, and yet, um, and and there were all these negative stereotypes associated with it, um, uh, lifestyle, obesity, um, and these judgments. And I mean, Jocelyn, and I know this will come out in another question, but Jocelyn actually um, talked about diabetes as being a uh, penalty of, of, of obesity. So there are these negative associations, but at the same time, it was considered to be a disease largely of whites, Jews were considered to be white, and of civilized people. Um, and, um, and the simplest explanation of that would just be that it was in um, developed populations that people ended up living long enough to develop diabetes and other diseases of civilization. But it became very coded with um, sort of bourgeois modes of disciplining bodies. Um, so, um, so there was the negative, but there was also the positive association. And when after World War II, as diabetes became associated with populations of color, the disease gradually lost its association with being a disease of civilization and became a disease of primitive populations. So that was, um, it was startling to me when I was able to map that transition um, um, placed over the way in which the racialized category shifted. Mm, yeah. Um, one of the most um, stunning things in in the the first chapter on um, the the history of diabetes as a as a Jewish disease, for me was a reading about one um, scientist's efforts to trace the ancestry. So thinking about um, these biological notions of race to um, sort of a, a, a farther eastern origins of Jewish populations so that Jewish people could be um, considered under the Chinese Exclusion Act and immigration could be restricted. And so seeing how that was so closely tied to xenophobia of the early 20th century was really stunning. And then in the second chapter, thinking about the Johnson-Reed Act, which um, I think is one of the most remarkable uh, historical documents, and I'm so glad people work on this, with the concept of a dictionary of people, where you really start seeing the federal government in the United States creating these very firm policy-relevant um, ideas about who counts as white. And that's when, when Jewish people were officially uh, decided to be white. Um, yeah, it was it was just really remarkable. Um, so here, I want to um, I want to hand the question the the floor over to Parwan to think more about how um, what we should make of these sorts of scientific forms of evidence. Yeah, uh, you discussed the tendency for doctors to make incorrect assumptions regarding the underlying causes of disease. How has your research changed your opinions on the credibility of scientific claims? Yeah, thank you. Um, so. So I have to say that the, the, I was not surprised by what I found. 
um, in my research for this book, because as an historian of medicine and science, um, I, I've been trained to look for the assumptions that um, that scientists and um, and physicians and people in the healthcare community bring to the work that they do. Um, and and the way in which those assumptions inform the interpretations that they provide. So so basically, um, I mean, I started this in college, but certainly um, since I entered graduate school. Um, and you know, I would say the benefit of history is that the assumptions are so much easier to see. Right? They're just they're just well. There's a lot of overt. Um, uh, declarations going on today as well, but I'll put that aside. Um, but historically, they're a lot easier to see, but it's it's clear that they're not gone today. And so, um, you know, to that extent, I mean, they're harder to identify. Um, and so to that extent, I, I continue to be wary and my research supports that. Um, but there are also so many more safeguards in place today than there were in the past. And so my wariness doesn't lead me to be, um, to say that there's no legitimacy to the kinds of knowledge that is being produced today. And those safeguards, I would say first and foremost, are um, in the great diversity in um, medical and scientific communities. So who's doing the research, who's producing the knowledge and the more diversity there is, the um, the more likely it is that people will call each other out on the assumptions that they're making. Um, and I would say peer review, for all its problems, um, is um, effective at um, pushing people to clarify what they're what they're saying, what they mean, and to again call people out on um, just blanket assumptions about populations. Um, and then I would also say that you know we are engaged in robust conversations about race and class to some extent, not as much in this country as elsewhere. Um, and these robust conversations raise people's awareness. Um, so. Yeah, so I would say I remain wary, but um, comfortable that we're um, uh, that we're that that we're catching bad um, knowledge um, uh, more often than than in the past. Yeah, I have to to say that I share your enthusiasm for peer review, despite all its faults. It's kind of amazing that. It, it does seem to work to do some really good things. Um, so on on this issue of how you how you're thinking about scientific evidence, um, one of the things that you really underscore is that there's such an attention in the, in the United States in particular to race. but what you're really pushing for is stronger attention to raceism, right? in medicine as as a real driver of disease. And in the third chapter, you're, you're focusing specifically on how diabetes came to be more associated in the years, as you mentioned, after World War II with Black Americans, um, and how during the failed reconstruction, when um, there 
the just the promises of the U.S. government for the end of the Civil War just simply and you know horribly didn't come through. Um, that there were theories of um, Black Americans having uh, racial immunity, and so these were some of the most sort of odiously racist uh, ideas about uh, the biological basis of of health and of of race as well. Uh, but then after that, it shifted to this notion of high rates uh, of diabetes among Black Americans. And your your question is for the for readers is not so much whether it was strictly accurate, but how on earth there could even be this kind of shift in the per- first place, and how um, the sorts of evidence that was coming up could simply not be seen, as in it just wasn't legible. Uh, to the interpreters, and it brought to mind also Dan Bauck's work on how um, uh, health uh, life insurance companies justified charging higher rates for Black Americans um, at this moment in time when there's a shift to notions of higher disease susceptibility. Um, and you were you were mentioning how you know one of the ways one of the things that gives you um, courage around. Uh, support for me, uh, medical and scientific evidence around disease sort of sort of tempered support is um increasing racial diversity of the of science fields and and healthcare practitioners in general so to what extent do you feel like this is a, also a story about um the medical profession in thinking especially about black americans we we read for example the flexner report uh in the past oh so to what extent do I feel like my book is uh, is saying something about the medical profession? Or to what extent is my hope for the future based on the changes that I see happening in the medical profession? The former, whether the book is also partly tracing changes um, in who could be an, a healthcare provider. Um, so... Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it is, I mean, that's not, that was not a focus of my book. Um, it's certainly the case that um, that those who really fought for, um, those who fought to make diabetes visible in um, populations of color tended to be um, individuals from those populations who had um, managed to break into what had been primarily a white profession um, and uh, advocate for um, people who look like them. Um, and so in that third chapter of my book where I talk about the invisibility of diabetes in um, uh, the African-American communities, um, uh, what I point out is that African-American practitioners were the first to really start drawing attention to increasing numbers. Um, and, um, and, and they were publishing in newspapers and some journals, um, at the time. Um, and what, what was really striking to me was the, I mean, not surprising, but striking was how difficult it was for that idea that 
African-American individuals could also have diabetes, how hard it was for that to gain traction um, or to use your language for that to become legible, right, for that to be seen. And the only explanation that I could come up with was that the um, that the stereotypes were just so embedded that um, in all the stories that had been told for decades about who got diabetes and why just had created, there was just no space for seeing that these numbers were uh, increasing. I mean, it has a lot to do too with you know, who was, where were people, where were people of color who had diabetes, where were they getting care? I mean, who was seeing them and who's publishing in the major journals. And um, and so there was a kind of closed network um, that, um, that, that, that kept that knowledge out. Yeah, that's such a, that's such a great point um, about who was getting care from whom, who, who had access to care in, in the first place. Uh, and it also, it also shows, as you just, just pointed out, the real stickiness of these stereotypes around diabetes as well. Um, and here I want to hand it over to Ellie to build out on this. Um, hi. So I had a question um, specifically, how is diabetes and the stereotypes it perpetuates different from those perpetuated by other diseases such as obesity or HIV and AIDS? Yeah, so um, that's uh, that was also that was a really interesting question to think about because obesity is easy. I, I would say there that it um, it tracks stereotypes about diabetes, um, and it's a little bit hard to pull them apart. Um, obesity was also a sign of wealth, um, and so um, people who who were larger tend to be tended to be people who had money; they could afford to. Um, indulge in um, a, a lot of eating um, to live the high lifestyle. Um, and as I already mentioned, Joslyn considered diabetes to be a penalty of obesity. Um, but he didn't consider obesity to be a disease, right? So, so this notion that obesity is a disease that circulates today, um, I, you know, I actually think it would be really interesting to trace its, the emergence of it as a disease, and, and, and scholars have done that. Um, but like the NIH didn't declare it to be a disease until 19, 1998. So for most of the um, history of diabetes that I covered, um, diabetes and obesity were closely linked, but no one talked about obesity as a disease. So the tracking there um, um, is, is very close. With HIV AIDS, um, the stereotypes are are very different, um, and largely because HIV/AIDS is um, the stories we tell there historically have been about sexuality and sexual preference. And as you all know, when AIDS first, um, when we first became aware of HIV/AIDS, it was considered to be a gay disease, um, at least in this country. But I would say there also are some really interesting links between the two stories um, because in the history of HIV AIDS um, uh, invisible communities were also created right so we didn't see um, for a long time or didn't pay attention to heterosexual transmission um, 
race is clearly part of that story as well, right? Because it was imagined initially primarily as a white disease. So in the early decades, it was invisible in um, communities of color. And, um, and then I would say the other interesting parallel to, um, to pursue would be the way in which, um, you know, good and bad forms of the disease or people who are innocent, right? So um, uh, blood, people who got HIV AIDS from blood transfusions, right? They, they, were, they were innocent um, versus individuals who um, pursued active, an active gay lifestyle. They were considered um, uh, responsible or guilty. And, um, and, and certainly today we have that same dichotomy between individuals who have what we call type 2 diabetes and individuals who have uh, what we call type 1 diabetes, where the sense is that it's not, it's not their fault, right? If you have type 1, it's not your fault. Um, and then the assumption is if you have type 2, it is your fault. So I think there are interesting parallels. That, that was, that was a, um, an intriguing question for me to think through. So thank you. You also flag um, how the opioid crisis, um, thinking about like Ruha Benjamin's work on on that as well, also maps onto this notion of when when opioid epidemic was associated with um, Black Americans, there was a notion of um, of victim blaming as opposed to when it shifted to white Americans. It was much there. That's when the kind of structural interventions came in. Um, and so thinking about the the fourth chapter, you um, highlight the importance of the work going on in genetics. So tacking scientific, the actual scientific world and things that are happening onto how these disease categorizations with these cultural social stereotypes are, are working. And so in um, the 1960s, 1970s, there's work on um, the thrifty gene hypothesis and um, the association of diabetes with Native, Native American communities um, in really large numbers. And at the same time, the book, you also show a, a table which actually lists the different groups that are considered at high risk and very low risk. And they're all, they're all Native American communities um, in these different areas, but there's this insistence or this perpetual association of Native Americans with diabetes, even though it was some groups, some of the time, and assuming that these these categories have been made sense in the very first place, and what you write is that um, the what this shows us is um, the the responsibilization. So the the notion of this being a bad a form of bad diabetes and individual responsibility for changing lifestyle choices among Native American communities, as opposed to um, the U.S. government actually taking a look at and acknowledging and trying to repair um, the history of racist policies and lack of sovereignty um, claims acknowledgments with with Native communities. Um, so that was that was really um, interesting to see that track with the rise of genetics in the chapter, and then in the last chapter, chapter five, you introduce um, or you you spend time with the Heckler Report. And so I'm wondering if you could just unpack that for us a little bit. Just unpack the Heckler Report? 
Yeah. What would you want sort of the the bullet points of that to be? Because you talk there about the division of um, of diabetes into what is now familiar today of type 1 and type 2, those two categories being associated with minoritized um, versus white um, communities. And so how, how notions of race right. are really reaffirmed through the Heckler report. Yeah. So, you know, the Heckler report um, was initiated with the best of intentions and um, and actually ended up producing the Office of um, for the Study of Minority Health. So um, I don't want to, uh, my, my intent is not just to diss it. Um, and the other thing I would say about the Heckler Report is that it, um, it was really a literature survey so it was dependent on, um, it, it basically summarized all of the research that the task force um, had been able to get their hands on um, um, that had been studying racial health disparities for decades. And, um, and I should say as an historian that that report was actually very helpful in leading me to some of the sources that were critical to my own research. Um, what, um, what disturbed me about the report is that it, um, it, it there was clearly awareness um, on the part of the people writing this report that there were structural dimensions to the health disparities that they were uncovering. So I should just mention, in case you forgot, that the task force was charged to try to understand why health disparities were so great. So they, the, the government realized that or recognized that um, the health of Americans was improving, but that not all populations were their health, not the health of all populations was not improving equally. And so the task force was was charged with trying to find out why. And what it did was this literature survey. And so in the introduction to the report, um, they mention, they show some awareness of social determinants of health. I mean, I won't go so far as to say structural racism, but they definitely showed some awareness of social determinants of health. But that was just in the survey volume. When you then went to each of the six diseases that it studied, they just, they just, it just disappeared. So that all of the conclusions that they drew ended up focusing on either the biology of the different um, populations that had such high rates or the behaviors. Um, so it it just it just it just erased any awareness of um, of um, social determinants of health, of structural um, inequalities. So I would say that I mean there you know there are other things that really um, uh, I, I find disturbing about the report, but I but uh, but but that's the that's the the kernel. Yeah. Um. Here, I want to hand it over to a tag team question. So, Robert, could you sort of frame a question for us? 
Yeah. So I was wondering, after reading your book, how do you want readers to now view categorizing health data in terms of race? And related to that, Sam, can you hop in? Yes. On a similar note, um, you discussed the historical mapping of social constructs like race onto medical diagnoses. And after reading your book, how would you like readers to view race as a tool to collect and categorize health data? Yeah. So you probably all know this is a hotly debated area. Um, and there are uh, medical researchers who think we have to totally throw out the category of race and others who um, argue very strongly that it has to stay in. And um, and I think of myself as being somewhere um, in the middle ground. So I think it's really important that data um, around race or on race continue to be collected. Um, I would just argue that um, that that data needs to be seen as a window onto racism, that we look at this um, when we see these racial disparities, that we see it as an indication of the way in which racism um, uh, acts upon bodies making people sick, rather than viewing race as some kind of um, biological or innate trait. Um, and, um, and you know, the old, my guess is that you don't encounter this much anymore, but the old sort of nature versus nurture debates that I grew up hearing about, um, uh, it, you know, that's that the, what makes, what makes this, um, uh, much more complicated way of viewing race and racism. What makes it tricky is that racism does make people sick, right? So there are biological, physiological expressions that are linked to race. But what I think is really important is that we recognize that it is racism that is making people sick. Um, and, you know, if you think back to the first chapter of my book, that's actually the argument that Jewish physicians were making about why Jews had such high rates of diabetes, right? So, like, what does it mean? What did it mean for a Jewish physician in the 1920s to say, um, when anti-Semitism disappears, goes away, um, so will diabetes, right? Um and um, and and so I, I'm not saying that what I'm saying is what they were necessarily saying, but there is this link there. Um, and then the only other thing is I would say that collecting data on race has to be complemented by collecting data on place and um, on class and um, on um, uh, it, uh, environmental factors um, and. You know, I'm sure you're all hearing about big data, and it seems to me that if we can, um, if we can get big data to coordinate information about biomarkers, then why can't we apply it to um, collating um, information about what we loosely refer to as um, social and structural determinants of health? So. Yeah, um, 
that makes a lot of sense on this debate about using race um, to measure health disparities or to think about policy implications. Um, I thought in the in the intro you really nicely pulled pieces of both views, where you said yes, we do need to keep collecting data on race and health, but not for the reasons that people typically assign for that line of argument, but rather it's the other line of argument, which is that racism is one of the key drivers of health. And so um, you write that race has a direct effect on someone's health, um, but genetic differences, which may or may not exist, are not the primary reason for health disparities. Rather, health disparities reflect far more racism that populations experience because of the, of the meanings ascribed to different skin colors and other physical attributes. Um, so that was a really useful way of phrasing it and for us to to be thinking about it. The piece that the book um, sort of brings up uh, that has been sort of a bit sidelined relative to various racial categorizations associated with diabetes over the past 125 years is um, income and poverty and socioeconomic status. And this seems to be what you really have have hoped for in terms of meaningful understandings of all kinds of disease and the way that that also relates to um, racism in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so f- for here, to, to wrap us up, I want to hand it over to Corinne. Yeah. Um- what comments have you gotten about the book that have surprised you, like about the evidence you used or the connections you found? Um, yeah, so that's 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 interesting. Um, I thought that I would um, encounter more resistance from medical researchers. Um, and I realized when I first started, um, so, you know, my book came out in August of 2020. So what was it? Month five of the lockdown. Um and all my talks were on Zoom, and um, and and I and and almost all my talks I have to say have been either to medical school departments, so medical researchers, um, clinicians, diabetes educators. I mean, those are the groups that have really been um, uh, interested in um, uh, hearing. Uh, about my book, they they didn't tend to read it before they invited me, right? I, I mean, I, they brought me in to give them the, you know, the thirty five minute. Okay, what's the book about? Um, so I thought I would get pushback, and um, and it was quite the contrary. Um, and I think that while in some ways um, it's been a disappointment to me that my book came out during the pandemic, in other ways. It has been perfect timing because there was so much, because the pandemic really exposed the depth of um, of um, structural racism in this country. And um, again, you know, as an historian of medicine, I mean, neither Professor Stark nor I was surprised by any of that. But but a lot of people in this country were, and there was a lot of soul searching going on among practitioners. Um, about the way in which their own training and their own practices might be contributing to or exacerbating the problems that they um, were trying to deal with. So, um, so that was one surprise, just um, how open 
people have been to the message. Um, and um, but that others like I, I gave a talk to um, a pretty large group of diabetes educators, and and they told me about how in their training they were taught about thrifty genes as though it was fact. I mean, they were just shocked when they read um, that chapter in my book. And um, so, you know, that was that was a little rewarding. I, you know, I mean, I was surprised, but I'd say, you know, that was pretty rewarding. It's it's always nice when someone says, thank you. I just, you know, I learned so much from your from your work. And then the other one that's just a little funny is um, people keep saying how impressed they are with like all the research I did for the book. And um, and, and I just want to say, well, this is what historians do. Um, and um, yeah, so um, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. I don't, you know, I think that there does tend to be a, there does tend to, some people in STEM seem to think that work in the humanities is easy compared to what is required of you in STEM subjects. Um, and so, you know, I would just say, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's hard work and, um, uh, and, and, and it takes a long time to do that, to do that research. So, yeah, I think that, I think those are the surprises. Well, we really appreciated, um, as you write in the book, um, that the stories we tell matter. And the ones we tell about race matter in very particular ways, especially when they under, they're undergirded by notions of innocence and guilt. So we're really grateful to you for this book, which um, helped bring together so many things we've been thinking about and talking about this semester and will definitely stay with us. So thanks so much. You're welcome.